Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Live from the 6th and Peabody studio and across the OutKick network, this is OutKick 360 with Jonathan Hutton, Chad Withrow, and Paul Kuharski. Trying to get those last-minute adjustments in before the game. Trying not to make anyone mad. It's a balancing act. Don't Each want to text the wrong people. Don't want to, oh, I, I thought I almost made a grave error, Paul. I sent out a text about the lineup, and I thought that it went to uh, the entire group, all the parents, all the 20 parents, and I was trying to send something to the coaches, and I had to double-check to look down. It was to the coaches. It's been so a I'm long good. time since I had a texting gaffe, but some of my texting gaffes are storied, giant, um, <laughs> yeah, let, let, let's not get into it any further. I, I have a nature question for you guys. Right. Uh, I come in with a, a developing story. If we had developing story okay. new, uh, sounder, I, I would ask for that. I, this is what's going on in my yard. It's, it's been getting um, Let's go to worse Paul's backyard. Worse. This is my backyard. This is uh, my, my elder dog, uh, Finley, in the foreground. And a, uh, a fawn who's, who's becoming like our third dog <clears throat> in the uh, background. And that was yesterday, and this is today. Getting closer and closer. I'm just loving the nature shots. Spatially. Now, in the dark, <clears throat> Finley does some barking. Uh, but in the daytime, I feel like uh, they're not far from touching. And I'm wondering how much from you two farmer types I need to fear the interaction of these two animals. Am I going to have Lyme disease coming into my house soon? I don't think you have to fear this. I don't think they're going to touch. Um, I'd be shocked. Sometimes if that, when we touch. Yeah, I, I I'd do. be shocked if that deer ever got close enough to be touched by Finley. It'll, it'll dart. Like at first I was thinking they were frenemies. It made me think of our, our lost friend, Mark Howard, who <laughs> came in and forced a frenemies segment one time. It was yeah. his yeah. item zero. Um, but now I'm thinking they're just friends. That, well, uh, there's a... Uh, my, my aunt and uncle have a, a golden retriever, an English retriever, and he will chase this deer. And then the deer, whenever uh, Roman is his name, uh, is tired and wants to stop, the deer will chase him around well, their, their backyard. I mean, I find a deer to be delightful, yeah. but I'm a little concerned. Now, my development is called Something Farms. We knocked down a, or, you know, they knocked down a farm. We built into a farm. And there's another house that's called something farm where all the deer hang out. I feel like this is her home, uh, but she doesn't go home. I, I feel like I want to give her the happy Gilmore, like go home, like to the golf ball, because I think that's where she belongs. But, does it, but Teresa seems to think this means she's been separated from her mother. I'd like to take this moment to encourage deer hunting because <laughs> deer are is wildly deer overpopulated. Uh, in residential areas, everywhere. They are everywhere yeah. in my neighborhood. No I'm not saying take this. a gun out and shoot a deer in a residential area. Go ahead, Chad. But if you've got some land and there's deer on that land and it's legal and it's deer hunting season and you have a license, 
By all means, go kill deer. Deer are not wildly overpopulated in residential areas. We've wildly overpopulated their areas. Would you We've rather, taken all these farms would you rather the people and built survive houses. Or the deer? Well, the deer aren't going to kill us. Do you want the people to have a place to live or the deer? They're not going to kill us. If we go build homes on all of their land, what are they to do? They are going to kill you when you hit them with your car. And then you cause wrecks well, I drive with cautiously. deer everywhere. I drive cautiously, this but I'm sympathetic wild. that we've built homes on all their land. There's, there's a turkey problem in our neighborhood, too, and that, that was straight up building a, a development on the turkey's home. Yeah. But I'm you all, for, expect, I'm you all gotta, for turkey you gotta, hunting you gotta, as well. You've got to expect that problem. Uh, Paul once lived on a street where his <laughs> neighbor, for fake deer. I have no idea why, had these fake deer that were so realistic when you come around this curve. <laughs> slammed down the brakes. You come around the curve, your headlights hit them, and you're like, man, it was, this, it was is, bad. this is bad placement on this road uh, to just have race. It wasn't Christmas time here. That was this better was, than the uh, slow down kids at play sign. That was their more yeah, effective. It should, have, it should be illegal. I mean, you're going to cause wrecks with that. Like, I think the city should come in and do something about Listen, it. Listen, I was miscast in that neighborhood. There was a tree down that stopped me from getting to New Orleans for a Super Bowl that we were on. Yeah. That was all, blame that all on John Rich, who drove me out of where I wanted to live into a neighborhood where we lived for several years because we had to get out. Brent in our YouTube chat says, Chad, during deer season, you are allowed three doe per day. If everyone took their three doe every day, it would help the population. I, now I'm not I'm saying not I don't want the, deer. I, I don't like want deer. the deer to be extinct. I'm not. I'm oh, not saying that. I don't think that. everybody should do that. But I mean, we should all do our part and kill one deer. I love this deer. <laughs> I just want to make sure that nobody's getting Lyme disease as, as a result of his presence, her presence. Hit us up uh, on Twitter at Outkick360. That's where you can interact with the show uh, today and every day, and you can download the podcast and uh, check out the YouTube channel. We we'll hope you subscribe and uh, share that link. Uh, through Twitter and YouTube, just by searching out Outkick 360. What the hell was that last night? <laughs> I, this, this is a case of... How does he have that job? I mean, I, yes, I don't want to overreact is, to something, but I'm watching that last night, and I'm thinking, I don't know how this guy recovers from this. We've also seen two kickers. In, in two days, we saw two kickers basically declare their hash mark and their yardage, and the coach just say, okay. We'll just get you that hash mark, and we're fine with it. In what world are you just okay with a 64-yard attempt to end the game? Well, in, in this in this world, in Seattle last that's night, that's what crazy. McManus told him he wanted. He, yeah. he, he tweeted he said, I out can make after it from the there. game, I told the offense to get to the 47 and get on the correct hash, and I would hit it. He's 12% from there. He's made one of eight. 64-yarder. And it, as they're doing this, I'm thinking to myself, man, we were complaining about Vrabel moving it two yards yeah. back to the 47. Like Vrabel a, looks like a genius with their clock yeah, management. Well, Gr- of the Vrabel's game. off the hook for bad decision I, uh, of the week. Well, but also consider the moment here and just where this sits moving forward on Russell Wilson. He did everything but win yesterday and uh, last night in Seattle. And you have the first game back for him. He's booed. I was surprised by the boos. I'll raise my hand and say it, that he was booed. Uh, a ton as he took the it. field. No, I, I like it. I was just surprised Seattle did it. Why does everyone hate him so much? Former like players are, are all over him with the Seahawks. I mean, I'm amazed to see it, how many people are just flaming Russell Wilson. Well, I think fans, just, with I think fans just don't like that he wanded out. I think players think Players don't like yeah, him. Yeah, I think players think he's kind of a... 
I don't want to say diva, but he's he's kind of a weird guy. I think they think. Well, I mean, he put up three hundred and what fifty yards passing, and I mean, yeah, he, he that's w- the guy. And you take the ball out of his hands on a fourth and well, five. Well, but, but not just take the ball out of his hands. They took the ball out of his hands on a fourth and five to set up a sixty-four yard field goal. They ran thirty seconds off the clock before taking a timeout, and they did it in Russell Wilson's return to Seattle. To me, that weighs heavy, heavier. With two timeouts any, on with left. Showing any up your own other guy. game that Wilson will play in, the fact that you set him because you didn't trust him to execute the fourth down to get closer, that's, a, that's alarming if you're a first-time head coach in your first game and you've just come from a system with Aaron Rodgers no where the ball stays in his hands and you have Russell Wilson who you just traded for, and you put him on the bench for a 64-yard field goal. No way you do this with Aaron Rodgers. So why are you doing it when your team traded the house for this guy? It it made no sense. I mean, everybody has the universal same thinking except the McManus family, maybe. Well, he tweeted out that he – I mean, he he said, it's on me. I told them where to get on the field. It's not on him, But still, you don't listen to him. I mean, that's – again, that's that's like a guy saying – uh, you know, throw the flag and challenge yeah. the call. You don't great. believe him. Great of great of him to fall on the sword and say that. My kicker's making no decisions on a football team. My quarterback might make a decision or two if he tells me something he wants to do. You are the head coach of the Denver Broncos. Brandon McManus is not dictating our clock management. Oh, 64-yarder. Sure, Brandon, gotcha. Good. That's what we're going to get. And that's we not that 100%. Spot, we're good. I mean, give me a break. I can make it. Brandon, doesn't mean I will make it. Brandon McManus saying this makes him look worse. Well, he says, So now your kicker's the one to blame because no. he told you what to do? Well, every head coach, Chad, is going to go to his kicker on the final drive and say, do? where do we need to get to for you going the direction we're going? McManus tweeted out, 46-yard line left hash was my line to get to. They got it there. Need to make the kick. Well, well, that, that's, that's fine. That's him being stand-up, and, and that's fine. And but that doesn't mean that's all you have to do, and that doesn't mean well, that's the minimum well, standard. Well, it also doesn't mean you game. leave two timeouts right. in your pocket that's when you're driving issue. to try to get there. Uh, you had plenty of other options to work the clock and stop it before. The fact that he loses the game on a 64-yard attempt with two timeouts in his pocket is egregious enough. But I get that the kicker's going to say, he's always going to go to the extreme end. And you want your kicker yeah, to be confident. That's what you want to know. But that, you got to understand if you're the coach, this is the extreme and this is not a comfortable kick. If you have two timeouts and Russell Wilson, your goal is to get into a spot where it is a more comfortable kick, not a 64-yard attempt. Period. Well, it, it, it comes down to me on who you have leading your offense. And you know, it's not like if it were last year in Denver and Drew Locke's your quarterback in that situation, I'm probably leaning on the kicker more than I am Drew Locke to convert that play and get us closer and get us a first down. But with Russell Wilson, you have to put the ball in his hands in that moment. That's the moment of everything that they've been building for all offseason with him. Back in Seattle with the game on the line down one. It's awfully symbolic. And you put him on the bench. It's awfully symbolic. Now you hope, for Hackett's sake, it's his one big mistake. No, but Chad, pick up where you left off there. on the Because Paul said you hope it's one big mistake. But you said it that felt bigger. Like, how do you recover that, from that? That felt like a guy whose coaching tenure and success is predicated upon coaching Aaron Rodgers. That's what it felt like to me. 
What'd it you felt think, like it felt like a moment that will be tough to do recover you, from. Do you think it's one moment as a coach? Well, you hope it's one moment. I mean, you can't judge on that small a sample size. But the one biggest difference for a head coach from a coordinator is clock management. And if uh, you know that first right. indication is he's not up for the task, you got to have somebody in your ear who's yes. helping you with it, whose assignment it is to help you with it. And, you know, there's a pause there where you got to sort out that whole equation. Look, we've got X seconds, two timeouts, fourth and five, the analytics, all of that, where it's go, no go. And the answer's got to be go. I mean, you've got Peyton and Eli and Sterling Sharp saying, you probably use a timeout right here any second now. Use that timeout. Call a timeout. Oh, Oh, the kicker's coming on. I mean, just nuts. And did anybody think that thing had a chance? No. I mean, I'm watching. I'm thinking, there's no way. It's a 64-yarder. He's not hitting this to win the game. Now, if it was Cade York in Cleveland <laughs> after that 58-yarder, well, he, hit, he well, may have hit it with 10 yards we'll to spare. We'll touch on that later because well, that field goal should have been from five yards further but there, back. There have been reports um, from Denver practices that McManus hits from 70 in practice. So, I mean, but uh, keep oh, in well mind. Well, good. It's not your optimal situation. But again, um, you want it, it to be a desperation. You situation. want to your He's, point, Hutton, You want Russell Wilson determining the game and not the kicker. Yes, yeah, the fourth if, and five. until you have to. Unless yeah. until you have to. Uh, it's a fifty a fifty plus yard field goal is different than sixty four yards out. Well, okay, let's let's look at first time head coaches. Okay, a tale of two first time head coaches. Brian Dayball tells his team the night before the game, I'm never going to coach scared. Easy to say when it's game one and you're inheriting a bad team and you're not on the hot seat. And very methodical but, based on who he's replacing. But he says, "I we are going to play to win. This is a player's league. I want to do what you guys want to do. We're going to play. We're not gonna, I'm not going to coach scared because I don't want you guys to play scared. Goes for two immediately, no doubt about it. Gets it, wins the game. Then you have Nathaniel Hackett with the opportunity to say, we just gave up the moon for Russell Wilson. We are facing Russell Wilson's former longtime team of 10 years where he won a Super Bowl and went to another one in their house on Monday Night Football to open the season. And instead of saying, of course I'm going to give the ball to my quarterback on fourth and five to get closer for a field goal, or of course I'm going to utilize my timeouts to give my star quarterback more time, the guy says, hey, Brandon McManus told me he's good from 64. Let's send the kicker out. Horrible message. I don't think he comes back from it. I really don't. I, I, he's he's dead to me as a head coach now after that moment. And, and here he is, Nathaniel Hackett, head coach of the Denver Broncos, explaining the kick and the moment where he put Wilson on the bench. Yeah, we were right on the line, and he had plenty of distance. You know, he he just missed it. And so, and, and again, that's, hey, Brandon gave it his best shot. I mean, that's a long field goal to hit. I think he's completely capable of that, but obviously I wish we would have gotten a lot closer, but it put us in that weird spot there because we were in the field goal range, but we were on that fourth down situation. Um, didn't think we were going to get that many yards, so I thought it was a great job by Javante, and uh, we just made the decision. We want to take our shot there uh, on that one. There is uh, the head coach discussing why he, did what he did. Seattle played very well to win it. In yep. that AFC West that we've talked about, you can't lose that game if you're going to be a playoff team. We switch gears and talk college football. There's some big programs that lost some games this past weekend, too, to the non-Power 5, the group of five schools. 
Barrett Salee, CBS Sports college football analyst, about to join us on Outkick 360. We are excited to partner with Aurora Nutriscience, a trusted partner that keeps us at Outkick 360 mentally sharp and healthy, and Aurora delivers your supplements where you need them the most, your body. VitaLifeScience.com is the website. V-I-D-A-LifeScience.com. It's where you can see more information and where Outkick 360 season ticket holders receive a 15% discount with the code OUTKICK360. Typical pills and capsules for your supplements, not well absorbed. But here's Aurora, unique, cutting-edge, nutritional and absorbable supplements encapsulated in liposomes, and that ensures greater absorption in the body's uh, bloodstream. I use the vitamin C, the vitamin D3, the glutathione. Uh, it, they have many more that you can choose from at vitalifescience.com, V-I-D-A-LifeScience.com. 15% off with the code OUTKICK360 at vitalifescience.com. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. Our Kick 360 rolls on from Nashville, 6th and Peabody, our location. Glad you're with us across the entire network. Recapping some college football now with Barrett Salee of CBS Sports. Always does great work. You can follow him on Twitter just by typing in his name. It's that simple, and he's back with us on the show. Barrett, great to have you back on, man. My pleasure. Uh, it was kind of interesting on Saturday, was it not? Uh, quite, it's been a great first two weeks of college football, really, uh, with uh, all the upsets, close games, tight ones. You know, I, I want to start with you on um, Alabama and Texas, because in watching that, I feel like I'm learning a lot about Texas and where they are. And then I start to see how Alabama is allowing Texas to stick in it by all the penalties, the inopportune uh, – in, uh, just the, the craziness that plagued them last year, which they overcame, that I think a lot of people think they're going to put in the past. But I think I, I learned that Alabama hasn't done that yet with their roster. And the receivers are another big concern for the Tide because they're not getting much separation like they were a year ago. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. I think there are two ways to look at this, right? I think when you factor in a an offensive line that has been absolutely brutal for the entire year last year, spring practice this year, spring practice last year. It's a trend. It's an identity. That's who they are. So when you make Texas's defensive front look good, that tells you a lot about where you are uh, as an offensive line. The 15 penalties, okay. Uh, it was awful. It was the worst figure uh, dating back to Nick Saban's LSU days. That that's fixable though. I, I don't know if the offense. I know the offensive line isn't the wide receivers. Okay, you have to figure it out. Trayshawn Bolden or Holden. Um, you know, Jermaine Burton, Tyler Harrell. Like, which one's going to be that guy? You know, there's enough talent there. I think you can figure it out. But it might not matter if the offensive line continues to play uh, the way that it's played. So, I when you look at Alabama, I think maybe we have this sort of uh, unrealistic view about what they should be. Uh, especially after 2020 when they weren't challenged really by anybody. Last year, LSU had a shot at the end zone to beat them. Tennessee gave, uh, gave them a ride. Uh, Florida was a two-point conversion away from tying them. Auburn took them to quadruple overtime. All of that sort of within the same 
uh, context of a bad offensive line. Uh, you know, and to me, that suggests that you're going to get a lot of more of this from Alabama. Maybe they can play their way through it, but if they can do that and still make the SEC championship game and win it, okay, fine. Everybody else has flaws, but as we saw last year, at times it can come back to bite them. Let's stay in the state of Texas, shall we? Uh, you talked about unrealistic <laughs> viewpoint uh, of of people on someone. What's the realistic view right now of Texas A&M after another disappointing game? which may or may not lead to another disappointing season, but certainly a disappointing offense under Jimbo Fisher, as it wasn't really a fluke, Barrett. They just got beat by a better team on Saturday in Appalachian State. Yeah, and you know, Chad, they got beat by a, a team in Appalachian State who beat them on the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball. I, I love Appalachian State. They've got a better quarterback in Chase Bryce than Haynes King. I don't think anybody doubted that going into the game, but you're supposed to be able to dominate that team if you're Texas A&M in the trenches, and it didn't happen. And I think from an offensive line standpoint, that was one of the questions we had going into the season. And then defensively, I think we all looked at that recruiting class and said, oh, look at all the talent that's coming in. Coming in is different than already there. And I think that showed its ugly head uh, on, on Saturday against Appalachian State. So for me, I think, look, I thought Texas A&M was an 8-4 and four team before the season. That's why I picked them to finish fourth in the SEC West. But if they lose to Miami this week, you're talking about two losses out of conference before you even get to the SEC slate. The first of which is against a really good Arkansas team in Jerry World, which the whole point, the whole philosophy of that Auburn team or that Arkansas team is to dominate the line of scrimmage. I mean, you're looking at eight and four at best for Texas A&M. And if they lose this week to Miami, I don't even know how they're going to go 500 in the SEC, which would be a complete disaster for Jimbo Fisher. So it's a it's a it's a season defining game this week. And even if they get past Miami, I don't necessarily know how much it's going to matter because the issues are still going to be there. You've said Nebraska needs to consider whether Nebraska is good enough for candidates, not if candidates are good enough for Nebraska. What's that mean for for names that have been floated like Stoops and Campbell? And, <laughs> and where's that leave uh, who you think is is the right kind of guy? Anybody who thinks that Mark Stoops would take the Nebraska job is clinically insane. There's absolutely zero chance that that happens. Sure, you might float his name out there and get some more money from Kentucky as any person should. It's capitalism for, for a reason. But I, the idea, like Kentucky is the second best team in the SEC. They've won 10 games, two out of the last five years. They've played in a de facto SEC East title game, despite the fact that Florida has been good. Tennessee was sort of up and coming and then disappeared and came back in. He's built that program the way he wants to build it. It's in his image. Going to Nebraska, what are the expectations? Because if the expectations are to do exactly what Kentucky's doing, I think Stoops would feel way more comfortable doing that in the SEC. And if they're anything beyond that, then people in Nebraska are unrealistic about where they stand in the realm of college football. So, yeah, I mean, I think when you're in Nebraska, you have to look at yourself in the modern era. In the modern era, these kids don't even know Nebraska as a Big 12 school. They've always known them as a Big 10 school. You know, we're all old dudes. We remember when Nebraska was winning national championships. That's in the past. In this day and age with NIL and recruiting and all this other stuff that goes into modern college football, they're not even close to being relevant uh, on the national landscape. So for Mark Stoops to go there, what's the point? To go 
maybe beat Wisconsin and play in a Big Ten championship game and get smoked every once in every five years. I, I, all right. But, uh, you know, Matt Campbell, OK, maybe because the financial is, uh, aspect of this. But it's such a difficult job based on the disconnect that the administration fans have from the reality of where Nebraska sits. And that's why I think they should go after Troy Calhoun at Air Force. He recruits the kind of guys who can uh, can succeed at, at Nebraska. And I think more importantly, he can run a triple option out of the spread, a lot like what we saw from Vanderbilt in game one against Mike Wright and what we saw with Georgia Southern when Willie Fritz was there. That would be the perfect style for Nebraska. I just don't know if they realize that because they have such an unrealistic view about them about where they are. Barrett, when can we expect Eli Drinkwitz's bite to match his bark? Because they were miserable <laughs> against Kansas State uh, on Saturday, and I joked that you know, well, maybe the good luck for him is that Kansas State will get in trouble with the NCAA and he can claim a win, like he joked about with Tennessee after the fact, after getting pounded on the field. That that was a bad performance by Missouri on Saturday. It was really bad, and it's bad for for multiple reasons. One, defensively, they were awful last year. Nothing's changed, obviously. The bigger thing to me is Eli's supposed to be an offensive genius. Brady Cook can't play. Their offensive line can't block. They're having a hard time running the football. It's one thing when you have Tyler Beatty as your running back. He's you know a generational-type running back. I don't think he got enough credit for what he did last year. But it's another thing when you just don't have the players. Yeah, Luther Burden's a great weapon outside you can't get on the ball how are you supposed to succeed we can't get on the ball they've tried everything in the first game they used him as a as a running back a lot and, and as on jet sweeps and it worked fine but it wasn't like he was a difference maker there just is nobody on that team other than luther that even have you know and that has enough talent to even be relevant in the sec or would start at other sec programs so it's it, it's a bad time right now for eli drinkwitz I think the expectation was at this point that they would at least be relevant in the SEC East, and they are extremely, extremely far away from that. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing for Tennessee that fans seem to look at a win on the road against Pitt and just point out the negative about it and say, well, they played terrible, but on the flip side, they didn't play well at all offensively and still found a way to win the game. What did the outcome of that game and how Tennessee played in the very end, what did it tell you about any steps being made under Josh Heupel in that program? It tells me that the steps are being made in a big way. If Tennessee fans are upset about the offense, okay, fine. Ohio State fans were upset about the offense in week one. It will be okay. Uh, you know, I think that's, that's the known commodity with Tennessee is that the offense is going to click, they're going to run fast, or, you know, all that stuff. Tennessee's defense was the problem and poor Keaton Slovis. I felt bad for that dude, you know, because he just had no shot. Well, if you're Tennessee, isn't that what you want? Like, isn't that what you want to see? Because you want a complete football team. You want to be able to go up and compete against the best of the best. And while, you know, maybe that's not Alabama or maybe it is, I don't know. Um, but you, you have the bullets in the, in the chamber to be able to do that after what you saw from that defensive front seven. So, you know, I don't understand why there would be any anything negative to take from that. It's it's on the road. It's in a little bit more of a hostile environment, I think, than maybe a lot of folks expect out of Pittsburgh. And you, I wouldn't say fix the glitch, but you fixed a lot of the issues that maybe you were concerned about going in. So I think Tennessee, that was a great performance. I think 
Um, if, if people are looking at it in a negative light, I'd love to know why they're upset because the offense will be just fine. You, you wrote uh, regular season must be preserved. Uh, and I'm curious what must be preserved looks like in terms of, in the context of the 12 team playoff. Well, I mean, think about what we enjoyed uh, over the course of the first two weeks of the season. Backyard brawl, which has literally zero impact on the college football playoff. That was unbelievable. The North Carolina-Appalachian State game literally has no impact on the college football playoff. Everything that would be discussed in a 12-team playoff would be centered around the college football playoff. And that would take a lot of the joy away, a lot of the impact away from some of those games. I love the fact that in college football, you don't necessarily know what the outcome of every week means. The, 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 the landscape of the season is defined by whatever the season dictates, not by an arbitrary college football playoff number or automatic bids or all this other stuff. I hate that we have too much of a discussion about the college football playoff now because all of November is devoted to it. I don't like that. And if you when if you expand it, when you expand it, it's going to bleed into October. It's going to bleed into September. And all the things that we enjoyed are are not going to be relevant. I mean, think about the Florida well, State how LSU is, game. How is North Nobody Carolina, Appalachian that. State relevant to the college football playoff, whether it's four or 12? I mean, it's a it's a standalone item that was exciting. It's it was an incredible game. It's not. That's the point, right? Like we don't know if it is, but it, in all of our minds, it's not. If you were to have a twelve-team playoff, that game would be viewed within the context of the playoff. I'm glad it wasn't Florida State LSU. Neither nobody thought that Florida State or LSU would make the playoff. And in a twelve-team playoff, you think, okay, maybe one of them gets in at large. I don't like that. I think that being able to enjoy college football for the games themselves and not within the context of the college football playoff preserves the regular season, preserves the entertainment value of the regular season, while also builds the landscape that is necessary to figure out who is the best team at any given year. Barrett Salee, CBS Sports, with us on Outkick 360. Kentucky and Florida. Last week at this time, everyone's discussing Anthony Richardson and the Gators beating Utah. Uh, and, and then we saw the Kentucky defense and Richardson regress to the mean a, a bit with this play. I, I'm curious from your vantage point, Barrett, was it more about Richardson being more of what he is at quarterback or was it more about the Kentucky defense on Saturday? It's more about Richardson. Uh, it's both, but it's more about Richardson because when you take his legs away, which part of that was because he was banged up. They'll never admit that, but that's, you know, part of that was that he was banged up. But when you take his legs away, he can't pass. He's last in the SEC among qualifying quarterbacks in passer rating. And he's significantly below whoever's 13th. I can't remember who it is. It might be Mike Wright. But if you take his legs away, he's nothing. And so when when Kentucky did that, I think it exposed Anthony Richardson as I wouldn't say a one trick pony, but certainly a developmental quarterback. And honestly, when you look back at the Utah game, aside from the two point conversion Houdini act that he made when he when he uh, when he slipped out of a tackle and found a receiver in the back of the end zone, he didn't do anything through the air uh, that night either. So, uh, you know, I think that certainly exposed that he's very inconsistent and has a lot of work to do. But 
I think the Kentucky defense, we know what the Kentucky defense is going to be week in, week out. Getting right back at linebacker obviously made a big difference as well. Uh, but that, that I think, was the known commodity. That was sort of uh, assumed going in that Kentucky's defense would play pretty effective just because their, their floor is so high. Uh, Anthony Richardson can't throw. He's still a developmental pro, uh, prospect. And, you know, I think that showed. What level of freak out should Notre Dame fans be in right now? Is it time to to panic? Or do you look at the situation now, especially with Buckner being injured, and you say, maybe just give this year a mulligan, which sounds crazy as the head coach at Notre Dame, regardless of what happens? Or do you think Barrett, this team, is still going to be okay in the end, even with... Obviously, a good showing against Ohio State and a loss, a very bad showing in a home loss to, to Marshall. I think you you write off some aspects of it. Uh, you can't account for Tyler Buckner's injury. Um, so, you know, you put your backup in and Drew Pine. I, I don't, I'm not sure Drew Pine can handle it. He was put into an awful situation against Marshall, so you sort of write that off. Uh, but, you know, you can't if, when your starting quarterback gets hurt, it, it's a problem, especially in your first year as a head coach for Marcus Freeman. I think the m- more concerning part was that they got blown off the line of scrimmage by Marshall. Uh, they couldn't stop that rushing attack for Marshall. But what I do think sort of gets lost is that Laybourne, the starting running back for Marshall, was a five star prospect. He was a tr- is a transfer from Florida State. He's a really good player. So I think you have to temper expectations and recognize that it is a transition year. And the chips are not necessarily falling in your favor so far. That might change, obviously, but you need to, I think, realter your expectations if you're a Notre Dame fan to say, all right, look, this is a rebuilding year. It's a transition year. It sucks. But in reality, that's probably what should have been the expectation anyway. Mississippi State through two weeks, they don't have a great win, but they beat up on Memphis. They get the job done on the road at Arizona. Barrett, it's been pretty impressive, you know, as, in terms of the SEC mm-hmm. and what we've seen from Mississippi State. They've been all business so far, and they've looked really good. Their defense has been awesome, and I think that gets overlooked. Zach Arnett's one of the best coordinators in the country, and nobody ever talks about him. But I think what's really interesting about Mississippi State is we all talk about the air raid and how they go fast and all this other stuff. Uh, Will Rogers, nine touchdown passes, best in the SEC. Obviously, the most yards per game in the SEC. That's what quarterbacks at Mississippi State under Mike Leach do. But they also are winning the time of possession battle, which is a really weird development considering what they do and how they operate offensively. So to me, that says when they want to grind it out, when they need to grind it out, when they need to put opponents to bed, they do it, which for Mississippi State, that's sort of not in their normal DNA, the way that Mike Leach has built that program. So yeah, they're, they're very underrated. I'm surprised they're not ranked in the AP top 25. They were, I think, number 23 or something on my ballot for the CBS 131 that came out on Monday. But yeah, I mean, I think that it is, it's going to be interesting to see what happens when they go to Death Valley, because the one thing Zach Arnett, their defensive coordinator does more than anything else, he gets really, really creative with the pressure that he brings. LSU's offensive line is awful. So I think that will sort of tell the tale on Saturday night in Death Valley. I was with you on Utah as a preseason um, football (laughs) playoff pick. What did Florida tell you, and do you think there's still a path? Yeah, there's still a path. I mean, the offense looked fine last week, granted, against an overmatched opponent. You know, I think what Utah showed in that game against Florida is that 
it's ready for the big time. It's ready for, I mean, it went, they went down and, and had a game winning drive. Cam rising made one bad mistake, one bad decision. Okay, fine. Uh, but can they, if they run the table in the pac 12, you know, they, they need some dominoes to fall. They need the landscape to shift in their direction, but it's not like that's impossible. If you, if you're a one loss pac 12 champion that wins, what would be 12 straight games to close out a season, you're probably going to be in the playoffs. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's still a path. Um, it's not a very easy one, but if they are able to to play the way I think they're going to play and probably the way you thought they're going to play too, then, yeah, they can get in. I, I think that the it's interesting because we've had you know two teams from the same conference in. Last year, we had it when Notre Dame was in the ACC in 20 and obviously in 2017, those are, those are the outliers, right? Uh, if you're a, if you have that conference championship on your mantle, that does matter for the selection committee. I wonder how much it would matter if there's a one loss non sec champion, uh, in the mix as well. Uh, especially considering how regional the, uh, the playoff has become. Barrett Ali, CBS Sports, cbsports.com, college uh, football insider. Barrett, thank you for the insight, man, recapping the weekend with us, and uh, we'll, we'll see you down the road for sure as the season progresses. Thanks, y'all. Have a good Thanks. one. Yeah, Thanks, Barrett. You too. Always great. Always great chatting uh, college football with Barrett. We're, coming up, we have uh, some news with T.J. Watt. The Steelers have, uh, well, they've got an update on his injury, on his, his pectoral injury. We've got that, plus payouts from the power five to the group of five despite the group of five winning some of these games that's all next on now kick 360 you ready showtime on may 3rd summer starts with the fall guy what are you doing later let's drink a spicy margarita make some bad decisions yes Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Outkick 360 rolls on. John McClain will join us in 12 minutes. We'll talk all things NFL with, uh, with John. Looking forward to that. TJ Watt is not going to need surgery on his pectoral injury, which means he's only going to be out roughly six weeks and not the full season. The season puts you out for the year, or excuse me, the surgery puts you out for the year. Uh, the ability to not require surgery, which I believe the second and maybe third opinion of doctors gave him, allows him the opportunity to return in six weeks, all this through Schefter. That's big for them. Big. Um, the other injury thing um, down in, down in Dallas, I mean, Jerry Jones just, <laughs> he'll just will stuff to happen. He, he's not going to put Dak on IR. And so they're going to pretend like he can play in in four weeks. I mean, he's yeah, just it's there fine. everywhere during re rehab. Come on, Dak, you can do it. Well, you can do it. Come on, you got this. It's fine not to put him on IR if you don't need the roster spot. But if and when you have other stuff going on, you may need him on IR. Yeah. And you had to make that decision now. You have to make that decision before this game. And if they have a bunch of twisted ankles and pulled hamstrings or other stuff. They will have screwed themselves out of some roster flexibility. Well, it sounds like they're they're 
more optimistic about the six-week return than the initial report through Schefter and ESPN, which was eight weeks. But six weeks, you put a guy on IR. Yeah. I, I mean, I would take the roster spot because you're allowed to recall guys off of IR this year. Yeah. So, and it's I mean, there's weeks. a cap to it, but you can do it this year. Again, like it, it, it makes sense to save the roster spot where you could use it somewhere else. But uh, Jerry's like, nope, not going to do it. He's well, going to remain around. He's just going to will him. Great to, news uh, for Pittsburgh. Yeah. Very wow. Oh, that's huge. Yeah. Rodrigo Blankenship, by the way, kicker for Cut. the Colts. Cut. They waved him today. Greg Doyle asked him yesterday. You guys heard me listening to the clip. Like, how many times can you bring in competition for Rodrigo? And even if he beats the competition, <laughs> decide to stick with Rodrigo? And Reich was like, you know, it's a fair question. He yeah. said like three times in the answer, it's a fair question. You know, I've asked myself that a lot on the <laughs> yeah. flight home from Chris Houston. and I are going to go have a big meeting about that. They tie the game because he was missing kicks. Not a single AFC South team won this weekend, and two of them played each other. It's hard to do. <laughs> uh, hit us up on Twitter at Outkick360. Um, we, we saw some non, non-Power 5, the group of five schools, uh, get paid some big bucks to go win games this weekend. It's tough. What uh, a double whammy. Fox College beat. football with a great graphic where a 17-14 loss to App State. A&M paid Appalachian State 1.5. We mentioned this yesterday. Georgia Southern got went to Lincoln, Nebraska and left with $1.42 million And they also left with a win. And Scott Frost's job, 45-42. Triple whammy. And uh, Notre Dame loses to Marshall. Marshall got paid over a million dollars, 1.2, to go to South Bend and win. Of course, uh, Eddie George, I was, I was talking with him last night, they're getting over a million next year to go open up at Notre Dame. He was pumped. He was fired up about <laughs> this result because they're getting paid, and he's like, man, I can point this out to my, to my locker room about what you can do in a tough environment. Let me also say this about Utah State. This is not last year's 11-win Utah State team, clearly. Right. After getting pummeled by Alabama, they lose to FCS Weber State 35-7 to and paid out 390 k for that. But there's the big divide, right? You see the Power Five versus Group of Five schools paying FCS schools and the difference in payout. I mean, you've got uh, Bowling Green paying Eastern Kentucky to drive over a mountain and play them up in Ohio for 350 k as opposed to $1.5 million for a flight from Boone, North Carolina, to Houston, to bus up to College Station to stay and play Texas A&M. A lot of money divvied out, and in some cases, you rob the bank. And, and that's exactly what Appalachian I think this State is, has made a living doing. You know, Tennessee plays Akron this weekend. I'm thinking of other Power Five versus Group of Five. You should put a PowerPoint up if you're the head coach and, and the administration show this to the players the night before and say, we don't want to be this next team that paid out over a million dollars for someone right. to come in and beat us. We're paying all their scholarships. We're paying them for the pleasure of beating the hell out of them on our home field tomorrow. Let's be very clear about the objective and the mission when you're at a Power 5 school and you play some of these group of five schools. What an epic way, though, to make a payday. Yeah. You know? You're getting paid to go lay down. I think if you're a fan of one of those schools, that's probably the worst tweet you come across. Is that like you're mad that you just lost to Appalachian State and if you're an Aggie? And, you and then immediately Darren Ravel or someone is chiming in with, they've got it ready to hit send. Texas A&M paid $1.5 million for Appalachian State to come in and beat them. It's tough. Tough beat. 
So uh, Barrett Salih, who we just had on, speaking of A&M, had the stat. A&M leads the country right now in red zone percentage for touchdowns. But the, the problem there is they also have the least amount of red zone opportunities <laughs> one. with one for the season. <laughs> they've reached the red zone one time. They've scored, of course, but they've reached Outside. the red zone one time uh, to then punch it in for a, for any score. There should I be a threshold that. on that statistic that you have to reach the red zone so many times to right. qualify. You have to qualify, like a, a quarterback has or a to coach's record, you know, so many games played or season before you're eligible for winning percentage talk. I love that. Score from outside the red zone and make the red zone moot. Or the green zone. Well, they're, they're not scoring from anywhere. <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's not like they're scoring a bunch of long no, bombs I wish it and was games that. either. I wish it was that. Teams make the red zone. If it's not an A chain kickoff return or punt return for a touchdown, then they're not scoring right now at A and M. Or a deep, yeah, uh, or a defensive defensive stop defensive score, scoop and yeah. score. That's their best chance at a long touchdown. It's rough, man. Uh, coming up, we we get into the big storylines across the NFL. Um, there, there's plenty to touch oh, yeah. on. Uh, John McClain's a- about to join us. We're going to go through our, our top storylines from week one, and we'll start with last night where we gave our take on the, the boneheaded decision to not allow that game to end last night with Russell Wilson having the football in his hands and instead attempting a 64-yard field goal where at the time you had nearly a minute left on the clock. And instead they run it down 30 seconds, take a timeout, miss the kick and then then they decide to start using timeouts after that too craziness that's where we'll start with john mcclain we talk nfl next hour on outkick 360.